Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director for Communications and Marketing here at the Law School. Today, we are going to be speaking with Pat Connors, who is the Albert and Angela Ferrone Distinguished Professor of Law here at the Law School. And this spring, he hosted a five-part series about coronavirus and the courts. So a lot to talk to Professor Connors about. As always, though, a couple of announcements and reminders here at the top of the cast. AlbanyLaw.edu slash coronavirus has all the return to campus plans and coronavirus updates that you're going to need when you come back to campus this fall. We have the plan itself. There's a series of FAQs. There's a walkthrough video that, if you haven't seen, is on all of our social media, which is the best place to get updates. Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all those different things. And then we also have an FAQ podcast with the Dean about the return to campus policies. And if you want to hear previous episodes of the podcast, or maybe you missed that FAQ podcast, you can subscribe to us on any of the major podcast services or go over to our SoundCloud account. That's enough from me, though. Let's talk to Professor Connors. back here with Professor Connors. And uh, Pat, if you just take a second and introduce yourself to everybody listening to the podcast today. Thanks, Ben. Yes, my name is Patrick Connors. Um, some of you, I'm sure most of you probably know who I am. I teach New York civil practice and legal profession, which is Albany Law School's version of professional responsibility at Albany Law School. And I just finished my 20th year of teaching at the law school. Congratulations. It's great to have you here still. <laughs> yeah, it's been a nice run. I've, I've uh, enjoyed it a great deal. I practiced Ben for nine years. I actually clerked for three years after law school with Judge Simons and his chambers were in Rome. And he was on the Court of Appeals when I clerked for him. And then I went into private practice for nine years in Syracuse at a firm called Hancock and Estabrook. And I've been at the law school since 2000. Well, one thing you've been working on recently, though, is actually something I wanted to ask you to begin while we're talking here. And it's your five-part series about coronavirus in the courts that you were working on with the American Legal Net this spring. And I know you were explaining all the different changes, some of them pretty dramatic, with the procedures in the court due to COVID-19. Can you just give us a walkthrough of some of the most important changes that you covered during that series and some that you think lawyers should really be aware of as we move forward? Uh, sure, Ben. Yeah, this um, emergency disaster uh, has really caused many changes in procedure in New York State. And they started back in mid-March. And American Legal Net is a California company, does docketing and calendaring for a lot of law firms. So these kinds of procedural issues are important to them. And they have a a fairly large membership, or at least people that were able to get onto these programs. And I did two of the programs on March 25th. So that shows how early these developments kicked in. And then we did one on April 1st, another program on April 16th. And then the fifth program was on May 13th. Boy, I think we had the last three we did as live Zoom sessions, and we had over 200 people for each program. And if people are interested in getting those programs, they're available at American Legal Net's website. Basically, Ben, two things I think lawyers need to be careful of. We've had a series of executive orders issued by the governor. They relate to all sorts of things, but what's relevant here is they relate to the procedure in the courts. And there are essentially three sacred time periods that the courts cannot 
adjust or extend unless there's a law permitting them to. And those three time periods would be the statute of limitations, number one, the time to bring a claim. Number two is the time to take an appeal, which is very short, it's 30 days running from the service of the order with notice of entry or the service of the judgment with notice of entry that you want to appeal from. That 30 day period is sacred and cannot be extended. And there's an oddball in there, not um, as frequent, but important to lawyers doing arbitration. And that's the time to bring a special proceeding to stay arbitration. Then if I serve a demand for arbitration on you and you don't want to go to arbitration, you need to bring a proceeding within 20 days of receipt of that demand to basically stay the arbitration. And then that'll go to the court then, and the court will decide whether or not you've agreed to arbitrate this claim with me. Those three time periods are all sacred, and the courts cannot extend them. But these executive orders, the first one issued on March 20th of 2020, that's Executive Order 202.8. And then we had Executive Order 202.14, 202.28, 202.38. And finally, 202.48, that extended those three time periods, then plus several other time periods. And those are now, I said extended, but technically they're told until August 5th, 2020. Actually, the language on that's important. It's through August 5th, 2020. So, you know, you, I said, Ben, you had 20 days to basically bring a proceeding to stay arbitration. And if I serve you with a demand today, the time period wouldn't start running until August 6th. So these executive orders, they're all addressed, or most of them are addressed in those programs. Some of them actually were issued after the programs. But what I did then, Ben, was late June, I submitted the pocket part to the New York practice book that I author now, Professor Siegel's originally wrote the treatise and he published the first five editions and I'm the author of the sixth edition and I've been doing the pocket part since 2013 and oh my goodness there are just a multitude of issues presented by COVID that I had addressed in the pocket part and just for the listeners um, you know we can't get into libraries at this time many of you are going to be subscribers to the book so you should already have the July 2020 or the summer 2020 pocket part. Uh, if you don't, it's available on Westlaw. And then we now, Ben, we've moved into the 21st century here. It's available on a, a tablet through a ProView issuance. So lawyers can have the supplement and the textbook on their iPad, let's say, and they can take it to court and they can pull those things up. So that's where that material is available for lawyers. And I also published a New York Law Journal article back in um, mid-July. I believe it was available electronically on July 20th, July 17th, excuse me, and a hard copy on July 20th. And that tracks in summary fashion many of the changes due to COVID and, for example, the toll that we just talked about. I would highlight, Ben, you know, back after 9-11, the governor at the time, Governor Pataki, issued executive orders. It's interesting, if you go back and look at those, those were really addressed primarily to the statute of limitations and the 30-day time to take an appeal. 
they did not address other time periods. And those, um, that executive order was an extension and not toll. So back in 2001, during the, the crisis from 9-11, you had, I believe, until November 8th to file. You didn't get a toll. The clock didn't start, stop running. It was just an extension. And then everybody who was living with this extension and relying on it had to file on November 8th. Superstorm Sandy, we had the same thing. There were really extensions that were provided for in executive orders issued by then Governor Cuomo, current governor. Um, and those, again, were extensions to a date certain. This, the way these executive orders are framed now, they're told. So it's interesting, Ben, we may have a contract. And I'm going to claim, Ben, that you breached the contract in December of 2019. In New York, we've got a six-year stash of limitations for breach of contract. You will get the benefit, if you're the plaintiff, you will get the benefit of this toll moving six years out because the clock is stopping from mid-March to at least early August now. The governor may extend that. And that means that the clock stop and whatever time we have, I think right now it's about 100 and over 100 days. I forget the exact number. Um, and that's in the, in the Law Journal article. The clock will stop and that will affect the time for the plaintiff to bring that lawsuit for breach of contract going out to 2025. So we're going to be living with this toll for quite a long time. And the other thing I'd mention is that's issued by the governor. The courts also issued several administrative orders. And they, the courts have the power to extend other deadlines. And in some of those administrative orders, they extended deadlines, for example, to move for summary judgment which the courts have the power to do, deadlines for litigation timeframes. And those are addressed in administrative orders because the courts can deal with those. It's just those three sacred time periods that you need the executive order for. So a lot going on, a lot in the supplement that addresses that. Lawyers may wonder, well, why, why does he have to keep issuing these executive orders? Well, the governor only has power to alter the laws for a period of 30 days. He can then review that after 30 days and then issue another 30-day toll or stay or extension. But he's limited to 30-day periods, and that's why you see so many of these executive orders coming out. And the one we're living under currently, 202.48, goes through August 5th. 2020. So I want lawyers to certainly calendar, I would say calendar maybe August 3rd and make sure you, you know, you know, if there's been a new executive order and how it'll be addressed. If not, you know that you've got to move based on the toll expiring through August 5th of 2020. And yeah, we'll definitely have links to all the different things that you mentioned here in the show notes too. So if people want to check that out, they can just go down to the show notes of these episodes. But you, you touch on a couple of these kind of long-term things, and it just begs a question coming from me of with so many legal issues in the aftermath of this pandemic, what in your expert opinion, you've seen a couple of these, what are the most important or urgent things that people should start preparing for now? Primarily, if, if lawyers have cases in their office, you know, where there's a statute of limitations that may have expired during the toll, you've got 
another thing, Ben, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but New York practice junkies, procedural junkies like myself um, and many others, many, many of my former students um, know about the notice of claim. Just had a call from a lawyer this morning about a notice of claim issue. Um, his client was injured by a garbage truck owned by a municipality. So if you're going to sue the municipality in a situation like that, you have to serve a notice of claim on the municipality. And there is a 90 day time period to do that running from the date of the event, the date of the injury. Um, the toll, as I read it, and I've covered this in the pocket part at section 32 and 33, tolls the 90 day period. But again, that, that period moves very fast, faster than most other 90 day periods, lawyers will tell you. And you wanna make sure that you're calendaring something like that, statute of limitations, so you're promptly taking action after August 5th. But you know we've got a section in the book, and Professor Siegel was famous for this, and it's called section 231A of the book, and it's called Leave Time for Trouble. To the extent that lawyers are able to serve a notice of claim today, do it today. Don't wait until you have to rely on the toll or don't wait until the expiration of the toll. Um, leave time for trouble in all these things. And the courts are pretty much open now for business. There was a period then from boy late March through most of May where the courts were not opening open for filings. So you couldn't file your pleadings to commence an action. Now, thank goodness the executive order told the statute of limitations, but that you know was a, a problem for lawyers. And it even applied to electronic filing. But today, in virtually all counties, the, the courts are open for e-filing. And I addressed this in the pocket part in great detail. And even in the courts that don't have e-filing, they're open for a different type of electronic filing um, that's available for lawyers if they can't get into the courthouse. And some courthouses are taking, you know, pleadings and filings by mail. And one thing that I can definitely attest to is that, yeah, time is working much differently these days. It's so weird sometimes how quickly it moves and then it's so weird how slowly it moves. So yeah, definitely take that into account whenever you're you're doing anything these days. And we've been talking a little bit about kind of your, your past and what you have been working on. But one thing I wanted to spin forward here a little bit was a future program that you have coming down the line here. And this one's on August 28th. And I know you're hosting one of the seminars at the virtual 2020 CLE in the Saratoga seminar series, which usually is done in person, but this year is going to be virtual, but it's the ethics update 2020. What are some of the things that you plan on speaking about during that seminar? Well, that's, um, you know, a little bit of a different subject, Ben, that's ethics. But what I try to do is put together a program that's not just ethics in a vacuum, you know, what should we do? What shouldn't we do? I try to put together a program that's geared to the practitioner. What ethical issues do practitioners face on a regular basis? So I'll cover, here's a big one, fee splitting. You know, can I fee split with another lawyer outside my firm, how that's done? And we frequently have cases on that. So I'll address that. There's a letter of engagement rule, Ben, where if you're my client and I'm the lawyer, I have to comply with a letter of engagement rule and put together our arrangement. 
in writing, and there's usually cases on that that I'll talk about. And there's some proposed amendments to the rules of professional conduct, and I'll address those to the extent that they're important to lawyers. And those are some of the things I, I plan to address. And, you know, it's unfortunate this year, we, we're going to have to do this thing via Zoom. But, you know, in the past, it's been something we do in person up in Saratoga. And it's just a nice time, you know, to see the lawyers will come up in the morning and uh, we'll have coffee and we'll work pretty hard for three hours. But then we take a break. Usually by noon, we're finished and then we go over to the racetrack and, you know, try to apply our skills over there. So something I've done, and I guess I'll continue that tradition this year, even though we won't be doing any of this in person, but I'll try to give out some tips for the, the races that day in my program. That'll keep people tuned to the program. You know, they won't want to miss the tips that I give out. <laughs> Many times, Ben, they want the tips because they will cross out that horse from their selections <laughs> because I'm so often wrong. Just upcoming things. You mentioned the CLE at the end of August. I think that's Friday the 28th. And then whatever the last Friday is in August, we'll be doing it. Gee, you know, I'll probably be giving Kentucky Derby picks too. But anyway, <laughs> I'm also giving a program for judges uh, in August who are grappling with this. The Judicial Institute asked me to present to the judges because these questions are going to come before them. And then also, I, I suspect that with American Legal Net, we'll be doing another program sometime in August or September, you know, once we've been, once we know what the governor is going to do, you know, after August 5th. So the audience should keep their, their eyes open for those things. One thing I did want to ask before we get to the lightning round, though, and it seems like such a silly question, but I really feel like I need to ask an expert about it, is how important is it for lawyers to stay vigilant about ethics? It seems so ingrained and straightforward, but we still need the, these reminders in these kind of classes. How important do we need to stay vigilant about ethics in the field of law? Well, it's, it's very important because, you know, we receive our license and we put our heart and soul into that process. And undergraduate, you want to do well there. Then you do well in law school. Then you take the bar exam and then you apply for admission and they review your character and fitness. So once you're admitted and you have that, diploma on your wall, Ben, we call that your, your ticket to practice, right? You want to cherish that. You don't want to have it tarnished in any way. And that's why it's important to stay up on these ethical issues. So in your practice, you don't run into problems where you might be called into discipline, which you could be suspended from practice. You could be disbarred. I think those are rare cases and certainly for the people listening today, they're, they're not in that crowd. But you, you even want to avoid any kind of complaints or any kind of, you know, private reprimands and things like that. And you know, many lawyers will boast that they have practiced for 20 or 30 years and they've never had a complaint made against them to the grievance committee. And they're proud of that. And sometimes complaints are made in there. They're not legitimate. But it's important to, you know, understand that, to be able to, to develop a record to show that you acted ethically. That said, Ben, I'm ready for the lightning round. <laughs> right, great. And I know one part we touched on a little bit, though, is that you try and stump everybody with your horse racing trivia, not necessarily just the picks, but the trivia, too. So we're going to quiz the quizzer here in the lightning round. Are you, here, here we go. Are you ready for the, for the first quiz question here? I am. Okay. 
who ran the fastest Traverse Stakes ever. Ben, I must confess, I, I saw the lightning round in a couple of times, but I did not look these up. I'm going to guess two horses. Arrogate, who ran several years ago, he either broke the record or came very close to it. And then there was a horse, General Assembly, that ran in the mud, I think, in the late 70s or early 80s. It would be one of those two horses would be my guess. You are correct. It's Arrowgate with a 159.36 in 2016. Yeah, so yeah. All right, Ben, I just quickly, I was there that day, but I didn't have Arrowgate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the last one I went to in person, I think, was Bernardini. I think that was the last one I was actually in person there for. I try and avoid the traffic down there nowadays. <laughs> Bernardini was an amazing horse. Bernardini was not in the Kentucky Derby. No. But won the race at Aqueduct called the Withers and then went to the Preakness and won the Preakness. I believe that was the race where Barbro broke down. Mm -hmm. And yep, that then, was the year. Um, did not run the Belmont. I think the, the trainer thought that the Belmont was just too far. And then um, Bernardini went on a crazy run, run and uh, won the Travers and then won the Jockey Club Gold Cup, which were, was for older horses, and then lost in the – it's 2006, actually, and then lost in the Breeders' Cup Championship to a horse from South America who was going to come to me in a minute. And I had that horse, and I was in Kentucky that day, so I was – enjoyed that race very much <laughs> well speaking of horses that lost actually american pharaoh famously lost at the graveyard of champions in 2015 who was the horse that beat him oh god it was a dale romans horse and i was there that day too that was amazing and i'm gonna forget the name of the horse um you know what's funny too the horse really didn't didn't win much after that no he's kind of a one-shot guy i looked him up too What's his name? Keen Ice was Keen Ice, of course. Yeah, that was a Dale Romans horse. And, you know, the story with Dot Travers was uh, American Pharaoh came in and um, basically had a workout the day before, the Friday before, and about 13,000 people came to the track <laughs> for breakfast. And American Pharaoh, they said, thought it was a horse race. <laughs> he, he may have exerted himself too much on Friday and – as a result, was somewhat tired on Saturday. That was, a, that was an amazing day. What do they say? The graveyard of favorites, right? Yep. Oh, absolutely. And speaking of graveyard of favorites, how many Triple Crown winners have officially won the Traverse Stakes at Saratoga? So the, the, the traditional um, Triple Crown, for those who don't know, Kentucky Derby, Preakness, and Belmont. And then those all happen in the spring into the beginning of June. And then the Traverse is... In mid to late August, they change the schedule around every once in a while. But I, I will give you a hint. There's two that have won it, and only one has officially won it from Triple Crown winners. Okay. Well, I think the one that unofficially won it and was disqualified was probably affirmed, right? That's correct. He, follow, he followed Alidar, who was his great rival at the time, and Alidar was given the win in 1978. So that's the unofficial winner, but there is one that won all four. You just quickly on that, that's a great story. And Bennett Liebman, my, my colleague at Albany Law School, who you go to for all things horse racing, everything from the racing and wagering rules to you know just the history of the sport, could tell you angel cordero was the guy that caused all that if there was <laughs> bennett has said if there was ever an incident 
of bumping or disqualification in the 60s, the 70s or 80s, Cordero was at the root of it. And um, I, I believe he actually um, moved with a firm and just, you know, got in um, Aladar's way. And I just read a great book, Ben, just finished it the other day called Wild Ride. And it's about Calumet Farm that basically breeded Aladar and ran Aladar and his uh, death under mysterious circumstances and all about Calumet and Kentucky is a great story. Um, the other one, let's just, I, I know Secretariat didn't do it because Secretariat lost in the Whitney to a horse named Onion. I don't think Seattle Slough ran in the Travers. We know American Pharaoh lost and we know Justify recently didn't run. I don't think Citation did it. I'm going to say Whirl Away. Whirl Away 1941 is the only official winner. That's correct. Wow, that was a that was a tough one. Yeah, I think Whirl Away, it's funny on my mind because I think Whirl Away was a Calumet horse. And, um, you know, the book got into the long history of Calumet and this man, uh, Wright was his last name. And it's an amazing story. Now we have a, a really kind of off the wall one that is like quintessentially Saratoga here for our next one. There's only two horses that have ever beat three different Triple Crown winners. So in a, the year the Triple Crown was run, three different horses won the big three races, and then they all got together in the Travers and they all lost. And it only happened twice, and it happened at Saratoga twice. You have a different tri- Kentucky Derby, a different Preakness, and a different Belmont winner, and they're all in the Traverse Stakes, and they lose to a fourth horse. So that's the context of this question. Who are those two horses that beat three different Triple Crown winners in one race? Ben, I don't know. I, I think <laughs> one may have been recent. One was recent, I think, because I remember fairly recently there was a uh, a Travers where all three Triple Crown winners were in it, but I, I don't know. I'm going to have to... Yep. Uh, this one I only know because I used to work at a newspaper, and this was kind of one of the quirky things you always put in the preview section for the Saratoga season. It happened in 1982, and the horse was named Runaway Groom, and he was a Canadian horse. He was a gray horse, and that year he beat Gato Del Sol, who won the Derby, Alamo's Ruler, who won the Preakness, and Conquistador Celio, who won the Belmont. Wow, that's a good one. You know what? I've got some old glasses that somebody got me at a garage sale or something that they used to give out. And I have that horse on one of my glasses. Can you, can you give me that name again? Yep, Runaway Groom. And that was 1982. And it did happen once before that. And I actually didn't know it happened before that either. So I learned something doing this too. It happened in 1918 when Sunbriar beat Exterminator, who won the Derby, Warcloud, who won the Preakness, and Joran who won the Belmont Stakes. So 1918 was the other time it happened. We all That's learned something here in the, on the podcast. You know, just for the audience, if you're curious about that, I would check with Professor Bonventry. I think he was, uh, you know, a, a teenager <laughs> at that time. So he may have been at the track. <laughs> so last one here for the quiz of the quizzer. Upset, famously, is the only horse to beat Man of War and may have contributed to the term of an underdog beating a favorite. But what was the race that upset one and beat Man of War in? I think it was the Jim Dandy, Ben, right? But this one was a two-year-old race. Ah, uh, the Sanford? It was the Sanford, 1919 Sanford. Yep. Ah. The, 
the only time Man of War ever lost in his career, for those listening at home. There's an idea that the term upset for teams that are not likely to win beating heavy favorites being an upset, there's some evidence that this had something to do with it. Not totally, but some of it. I've seen that. And, you know, Ben, a similar issue is, um, and I know Bennett did some research on this, I think wrote a piece on it, but who originated the term triple crown? Wasn't always called the triple crown. And um, it, there's some mystery about when that, you know, who originally gave that, you know, term to the three races. Um, and there's a similar, I think, controversy about use of the term upset that's interesting <laughs> i would have to imagine it's one of those old old guys with a fedora and a cigarette between his teeth that those old bang away typewriters came up with the idea somewhere back in yeah. the old turf writing days we always like to end the podcast with this and give our guest an opportunity to maybe tell the law school community something we're coming up on a new semester it's been tough out there for everybody but we're getting through it all together and stuff like your presentations and your seminars on zoom have been so helpful to people is there just something you'd like to say to the law school and maybe the just the greater legal community as we head into the fall of 2020 uh well i guess there you know maybe three segments i'd briefly address um you know we've got students that are returning uh to complete their JD and get a JD degree degree and I hope they come back energized it's not going to be easy but it's important to work hard in every semester of law school so you're ready for the challenges that will face you on the bar exam and in practice so it's not easy but you have to dedicate yourself to that number 2 would be the people that are taking the bar exam now which you know they've been through a a terrible situation, but now we're looks like we're all set with an October online exam, and I wish them the best of luck. Again, it hasn't been easy, but being a lawyer is not easy, and you're going to be faced with these challenges, and I wish those people the best, and I, I think in the end, I know this has been frustrating, but in the end, uh, they will come out stronger as a result of this. And number three, and I, I think groups one and two need to be aware of this, is the practicing bar. And it's not easy practicing law at this time. There are a lot of lawyers I know that are you know, facing all sorts of hardships with health issues, with you know, the economy, the cases in their office aren't moving. And it hasn't been easy on the lawyers either. I wish them the best through this and I'm hoping that we're going to come out of it soon and we can return to normalcy. Professor Connors, thanks for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. This is a lot of fun. I hope we can do it again soon.